This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Morning everyone, if I ever met you, my name is Seti. Uh, I'm married to Louisa. We have six kids, three boys, three girls. Um, we're part of the uh, Peakhurst GC group. And um, I just want to warmly welcome you for joining us this morning. Let me open up in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity together and to hear you speak to us. Quiet in our minds and our hearts, open our ears, our eyes, that we might see your glory, understand your will, and apply it for your name's sake. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to begin by sharing uh, two experiences that I previously had. Uh, one not that long ago, and the other a number of years ago. Uh, the first one was when I was invited to another church to speak at a men's event. <clears throat> and uh, before I delivered the talk, I was interviewed where I was asked a number of questions, what I do during the week, uh, what it's like being a chaplain, and of course, as you know, uh, the highlights as well as the challenges of working in corrections. After finished giving uh, the interview and delivering the talk, uh, one guy came up to me. Uh, at the end of the service, and this is what he said. He said, uh, you don't seriously think that people in jail uh, change, do you? Because I'm sure that there are people there who are just pulling your leg, they're faking it. Uh, I'm sure that's happening. Now, I must confess that, you know, for a moment there, um, I was starting to uh, feel angry, frustrated, um, as this guy was flapping his gums, you know, I was imagining, you know, punching him in the throat, um, <laughs> kicking him in the solar plex, kicking him in between the legs, and then poleaxing him. Um, and I know that they're ungodly thoughts, um, and I struggle with these things from time to time. Um, but I was frustrated because I was attempting to remind him over and over again that God changes people. When you look at the long list of people in the Bible, you know, for an example, you've got Abraham who committed uh, adultery and lied. Uh, there's Jacob who lied and deceived his father Isaac. Then there's Lot who uh, commits incest with his daughters. Noah got blind drunk and got all his gear off. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. Moses committed murder. Uh, King David committed murder and adultery. Uh, King Solomon married many women and worshipped many gods. Uh, the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus met went from one relationship to the other. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, stole from people, ripped them off, took advantage of them. Peter denied Jesus, and the rest of the apostles deserted Jesus. And then, of course, you've got the apostle Paul, um, who was a terrorist back then in the first century, pursuing Christians. And so no matter how many names and people that I listed for this guy, but he wasn't convinced that God could do the same for others in jail. Now, to be fair to this guy, I've also made the same mistake too in the past. Uh, I remember back in the summer of 2008, uh, my family and I were at a Sydney beach uh, where I ran into a, a professional NRL player um, who a couple of years before that was involved uh, in a, a, a well-known case where it had been publicised in the news, um, it made the headlines. And, and I remember the first thing that he said to me when we met that day was, and I, I never expected it from this bloke, he said to me, I've become a Christian. Uh, and 
the first question that came to my mind was, has this person really changed? Uh, there was doubt. Uh, I'm also reminded of the story of Saul in the Bible, who later became known as the Apostle Paul, as I mentioned earlier. Um, in the first century, he was pursuing, hunting down Christians, arresting, throwing them in jail. Uh, and then Jesus turns up, he hits him like a Mack truck, intervenes you know, with his life, reveals himself to him, and then he goes from being a persecutor of Christians to a preacher of the good news of Jesus. And even though he'd been converted, the apostles, the rest of them themselves, they themselves weren't convinced. And in Acts chapter 9, it does say this, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Today's story, as we'll see very shortly, is about an Egyptian official, and his name is Joseph, second most, in, uh, second most powerful official in the nation, sold into slavery by his brothers. And the question that he is constantly thinking of in his mind is this, Has my have, have my brothers changed? Are they different? Are they different from once what they were once like when I knew them long ago? And the only way that he could be sure of this, he could be certain of this, that they may have changed, is to test them. And so the big idea this morning for us to think of as we go through these passages, God changes lives. And there are three points. Uh, number one, change is possible. Number two, Change starts with repentance, and number three, we see, we see there the example of genuine change in the life of one of the brothers. So let's look at the first point. Number one, change is possible. Please turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 44. Now, just to bring you up to speed in terms of where we're at in the story, we're told in the previous chapter of 43 that the famine is still severe in the land of Canaan. All the food that Jacob's sons uh, brought back from their first trip to Egypt had now all been consumed. Jacob sends these sons back to Egypt a second time to get more supplies. This time, the brothers packed gifts, including twice as much silver, because if you remember, uh, last time they found silver in their sacks. They also took with them their youngest brother, Benjamin, um, that was a deal between them and their brother Joseph uh, in order to establish that they were innocent, they weren't spies, and in order to guarantee the freedom, the release of their second eldest brother, Simeon. Uh, when they got to Egypt, they feasted and they drank in Joseph's house. Good company, great food, great hospitality, but things then start to take a turn for the worse. In verse 1 and 2, Joseph instructed the steward of his house to fill the men's sacks with food and silver. But he wanted the silver cup placed in, men, in Benjamin's sack. Verse 3, when morning came, the men started out back on their long journey home. And everything seemed okay. Their stomachs were full, their sacks were filled. They were now returning with their eldest second, uh, second eldest brother, Simeon. Nothing had happened to you know, their youngest brother, Benjamin, and all was going according to plan. Until, of course, in verse 4 and 5, when the men hadn't travelled too far, Joseph told his steward to go after them. And when the steward caught up with them, he was to ask them these two questions. One, why have they repaid good with evil? And two, why have they done this wicked thing in taking his master's cup? This is exactly what happened in verse 6. Now, you could imagine the shock and horror on these men's faces. 
when the steward caught up with them and claimed that they'd done something wrong. Verse 7, 8 and 9, the brothers were horrified at the allegations that were levelled against them. They even reminded the steward of the silver they found in their sacks on the first trip back from Egypt and how they brought it back on the second trip. In other words, they were saying to the steward, it doesn't make sense to return something that they've already stolen only to steal it again. In fact, the brothers are so confident that they were innocent of doing anything wrong that they even volunteered the punishment that ought to be brought upon themselves if found guilty. And their proposal was this, if one of them had the silver cup, then that person should die and the rest of them should be made slaves. Now, how often do you hear in the news someone travelling overseas turns up in a foreign country, gets off the plane, gets the customs, and then suddenly they don't know how the contraband got into their bag in the first place. And I don't know about you, but I don't seem to always follow or believe, you know, their version of the story. However, with the brothers here, we know that they're innocent because we've been told right from the beginning. Uh, they've been framed, they've been set up. And so for the very first time, they're in this unfamiliar, uncomfortable, precarious situation that they find themselves. They're the ones who are powerless, vulnerable, and the tables, if you have been following the story of Joseph, now has been turned. They, not Joseph, now know what it's like to suffer injustice. In Genesis chapter 37, they're the ones who plotted to kill Joseph. They're the ones who threw him down a pit, uh, stripped him of his coat, and sold him into slavery. And yet, even at this point, they still don't know who Joseph is. Some might say that this is poetic justice, but thankfully, as we'll see next week, for Joseph, it's not about revenge, it's not about retribution, it's about reconciliation. But we'll hear more of that next week. Returning back to the passage, verse 10, the steward agreed with the brothers that if they were found guilty, there had to be consequences. The steward makes a slight change, though. And the change that he makes to this counter-proposal is this. The one found to be with the silver cup would be a slave, but as for the rest of you, you can go free. Verse 11 and 12 says, all the brothers lower their sacks, and one by one the steward goes through each sack, inspecting it from the eldest to the youngest. And eventually, where is the silver cup? In Benjamin's sack. And we're told here that their response in verse 13 is that they tore their clothes. The outward expression of an internal emotional grief that they experience because of this discovery. In Genesis 37, when the brothers hatched up the plan by taking Joseph's robes, dipping it in animal blood, and then returned it to their father Jacob, claiming that Joseph had fallen prey to a wild animal, it was their father Jacob who in his grief tore his own clothes because he mourned for Joseph. Not only were they now experiencing for the first time what it's like to be victims of injustice, but now they were also experiencing what it's like to grieve, like their father Jacob before them, when it came to losing a loved one. For Joseph, the question is still there, lingering in the back of his head. Will they abandon Benjamin, just like they did so with me all those years ago? And the answer, just judging by verse 13 here, is that there seems to be at least some early signs 
of change is hope. Before they were unloving, they were heartless in selling Joseph into slavery. Now when it comes to Benjamin, they're filled with grief. Here we're starting to see a different side to the brothers, where they've gone from being cruel to being compassionate. 20 years earlier, they were undecided, divided, in knowing what exactly to do with Joseph, how to dispose him, get rid of him. Now they stand together, uniting in solidarity, wanting to do everything they possibly can to save Benjamin. You see, the story of Joseph is just not a story about how God was faithful to Joseph. In never leaving him, his brothers may have left him, but God never did. But it's also a story about how God was faithful to his brothers, of how God is changing his brothers, not giving up on them, not walking away from them. Usually when things are good in life, comfortable, we tend to become complacent. And so when we get a curveball thrown at us in life, two things can potentially happen. Either we're changed for the better or we become bitter. Sometimes a crisis in our lives is God's way of emptying us of any false confidence that we may have in ourselves, in others or other things. Why? Because it's only then that God can begin his work of transformation in our lives. I was speaking to a guy during the week who came from the corporate world and he said life in a corporate world was like this. You're successful, you make a ton of money, you move up the greasy pole of, you know, like succession and promotion and then you buy the toys and that doesn't make you happy and then you start taking the lines of coke and you're, you're on alcohol because you're unsatisfied. Here, we come across brothers who thought they had it all together. They had hid their sin. They had ignored the signs. They had not addressed, you know, and confronted the things that they had done wrong. And that's why we find ourselves in this part of the passage. Came across a social media post this week and it says, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you'll discover that he's the rock at the bottom. Sometimes that's what God is doing. He's stripping us so that we will come to our senses, so that we would realise that he's the one that we need more than anything else. It doesn't get any lower than rock bottom for the brothers here when we come across verse 13. What does it say there? The brothers loaded their donkeys and they're back on Egypt. One person wrote, they left Egypt rejoicing after feasting. And guess what? They're returning to Egypt weeping. There's a lot of uncertainty. You see, even though the brothers were in a difficult situation here, but God was preparing them for something far bigger and profound, radical transformation. And the only way that they're going to be open to this is when they finally realise that they've got nothing to lean on but God. A friend, mentor of mine, he once wrote about this passage that under God, this situation served to bring Joseph's brothers to a useful point of crisis. Why? Because the process of salvation, the road to redemption, the road to restoration, the road to reconciliation requires them to do one thing, which is the hardest thing to do in the world in our lives. And what's that? That is to abandon all attempts at self-justification. 
You might be going through a crisis in your life today, and perhaps the prayer you need, you need to pray is not so much, Lord, change my circumstances, but instead it should be, Lord, change my character. Change my character through this experience. Teach me what it means, what it looks like to be patient, to persevere, to endure, to trust in you, to lean into you, regardless of the uncertainty. Last month I heard an interview on a podcast of the American inventor, entrepreneur and CEO of My Pillow, Michael Lindell. Lindell was first addicted to cocaine and alcohol and they cracked cocaine in the late 1990s. He was still struggling with the drug addiction in the early days of his business. Eventually it cost him his marriage of 20 years and he finally lost his house. Lindell says that after being so desperate for change, wanting a new direction in his life, he was left with no other choice. But back in 2009, one evening, he cried out to God. He prayed to him. And Lindell says, according to him, that he's been clean ever since. The manufacturing arm of his company in Minnesota employs about 1,600 workers, the majority of them, recovering, or recovered, sorry, drug addicts. Now, I'm certainly not saying that we should all experience this like Lindell did, because the reality is for Joseph's brothers, it took 20 years, a long time. 20 years until we start to see here early signs, promising signs of what? Of change. This leads us to the second point. Number two, change starts with repentance. In verse 14, when the brothers arrived back in Egypt, they threw themselves before Joseph on the ground. He was the fulfillment, if you've been following the story all along, of Joseph's dreams before, that his brothers would come to him, they would bow down before him. Joseph then interrogates them in verse 15, and it, and it is now that Judah, the forefielders of all the brothers, he steps up, and he's the spokesman of all the other brothers in verse 16. And here's what you hear in verse 16. First, you hear the frustration when he asks the same question twice. What can we say? That's what Judah says. Secondly, he expresses their guilt by asking, how can we prove our innocence? As one writer pointed out, the obvious unstated answer to these two questions were, we've got nothing to say. We cannot prove that we're right. God has now shown us to be guilty. According to Judah and the brothers, it is God, not Joseph, who has exposed them. They might have been innocent when it came to stealing, you know, like, you know, the silver cup, but they certainly weren't innocent in selling their brother into slavery. For so long, they had kept his family secret to themselves. They had carried this guilt around for many years. Now there was nothing to hide. It was time to come clean. It was finally the moment that the brothers collectively confessed. No matter how long time had passed, nothing, nothing could take away the guilt, nor remove the shame of the fact that they sold their brother into slavery. Here are some of the alternative ways. For them, it was repentance. But here are some of the common alternative ways that we might deal with sin rather than repent. And I know this from personal experience. Number one, we deny it. Number two, sometimes we minimise it. Number three, we justify it. Number four, we hide it. Number five, we shift the blame. Or well, here's another one that I've come across in my workplace. 
we recreate and retell the story that many times until we actually start to believe it in our head. Not Judah. He repents. They repent. And even though it took them this long, but that's how we know that they're ready for change. They're serious about change. Listen to what one man named King David of Israel, how he described what it's like to finally have unconfessed sin in his life forgiven as a result of repenting. Psalm 32 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. For David, remaining silent, having unconfessed sin in your life, refusing to repent means no peace. Your conscience is constantly tormented, and it manifests itself in physical symptoms, as we have heard. But David then says that when sin is confessed, when he does repent, God doesn't see his sins anymore. And this great, heavy, weighty burden of guilt that hangs over him is lifted. There is forgiveness, there is freedom, and there is lasting peace. In Genesis 44, the brothers no longer hide it, but they openly confess it. The 16th century German reformer, Martin Luther, once said, the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. Again, first step towards change, repentance. This leads us to the last, final point, number three. We see here the example of genuine change. Verse 17, despite Judah and the rest of the brothers' acknowledgement that they're all guilty, Joseph still continues to play hardball. Joseph insists that he's only interested in one man, that is, the youngest brother, Benjamin. He wants Benjamin to become his slave, whereas the rest of them, they can go home. Again, Joseph keeps the pressure up, where he continues to test them. And so the question still remains, will they desert Benjamin like they did when it came to him? They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, and yet there's so much at stake here. Their freedom. Will they trade in Benjamin for their freedom? For the remainder of the passage from verse 18 right to the end, Judah is the one who steps forward and speaks. And there are two things he does. One, he reminds Joseph of how Benjamin got caught in all of this in the first place. And two, he shares with him what will happen if Benjamin doesn't return home with the rest of the brothers. Judah points out to Joseph in what is considered one of the longest speeches in the book of Genesis the following things. Verse 19, it was Joseph who asked about their father Jacob and their brother Benjamin. Verse 21, it was Joseph who asked for Benjamin to be brought to Egypt. Verse 23, it was Joseph who made it clear that unless they didn't bring Benjamin back to Egypt, they wouldn't see him nor get any more food. They explained all of this to their father in verse 26 and their father reluctantly agreed in verse 27. 
And so Judah's point here, his plea with Joseph is, in verse 31 and 32, sorry, before Joseph here in verse 31 and 32, is this. If Benjamin doesn't come home with them, their father Jacob will die of grief. Now before we finally look at the most important verse in the passage, verse 33, let me give you a background to this man named Judah, the kind of man he was before all of this happened. First, back in Genesis chapter 37, it was Judah who persuaded his brothers to sell uh, Joseph out to slavery. Now Judah is trying to persuade Joseph to let Benjamin go. Second, in addition to that, Judah not only mastermind, was the mastermind behind Joseph's misfortune, but he's also responsible for messing his own family up. In Genesis 38, we're told that he met and married a pagan woman, had three sons to her. Later, he got a wife for his first son. Her name was Tamar. The first son was evil. The Lord took him. Judah then encouraged his second son to marry his eldest son's widow wife, a common practice back then. But the second son too was evil. The Lord took him too. Judah then sends Tamar back to her people with the promise that he will give her his youngest son, which he doesn't. Eventually, Judah's wife dies. He becomes a widow. He travels abroad. He comes across his daughter-in-law who disguises herself as a prostitute. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He finds out that his daughter is guilty of prostitution. Then he demands that she should be burnt. But when he finds out who it is and who he slept with, he's deeply ashamed. Now, if this is your first time to church this morning, you might be thinking, this sounds a lot, this, this is crazy. You know, I blame you. I didn't make this stuff up. That's how you know that man or humanity didn't write the Bible because God doesn't gloss over all the nasty bits. And yet, here we are in Genesis 44. Same man, the same Judah who repented of selling out his brother, who repented of all that he's done. Two things stand out here in Judah's speech to Joseph. One, he mentions his father numerous times, 13, I think, in all, in total. Two, he's willing to take the place of Benjamin so that the freedom of the youngest brother is secured. As we already heard in the earlier chapters, Judah never cared about his father Jacob when he sold his brother Joseph into slavery. Judah never cared about anyone else except himself, but now he does. He's willing to take the fall, not only for Benjamin, but also for all his brothers. Now, there is another person in the Bible who came to serve and not be served, who came to free us from the slavery of sin, who came to take our place on the cross to free us from the power of sin, to free us from the burden of guilt, to free us from condemnation to free us from the fear and the power of death over our lives, to free us from God's just judgment that you and I deserve. And that's our brother Jesus, the only Lord and Saviour that God has ever provided. Jesus was tested by Satan, but unlike us, he didn't give in to temptation. Jesus was abandoned by his disciples, but he promised never to leave them nor forsake them, including those of us who follow him. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we could be reconciled to God. Jesus died in our place that we would be free to live and to serve him. Finally, Jesus lived for one thing only, to do the will 
of the Father. Judah was a changed man. Jesus is the only one who makes it possible for anyone to be transformed. This morning, you might be struggling with unconfessed sin in your life. You might be weighed down by the burden of guilt in your life. You might want to change, but you don't know where to begin, where to go, or what to do. You might want to change your life, but you're often frustrated and discouraged by the never-ending vicious cycle of sin in your life. You might want to change in your life, but you are doubtful, you are fearful, you are reluctant for change. The invitation here is to come to Jesus, to repent, to believe that he is the only saviour that God has ever provided. Because at the end of the day, the truth is, he's the only one who can forgive your sins. He's the only one that can know you fully and love you completely. He's the only one who can heal your deepest wounds. He's the only one who can satisfy your greatest needs. He's the only one who's able to give you long-lasting joy. He's the only one that can grant you everlasting rest. Like with Judah, because of Jesus, we can change. There's hope for change. God can change your story. He certainly changed the story of Joseph's brothers, and he continues to do that as we'll hear more. During the week, another guy and I were sitting down, we're reading the Bible, we we're going through Romans chapter 5, and we came across these two verses in verse 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I asked him, What's your response? When you hear that even though you are messed up, screwed up, jacked up, you can talk to gangsters straight like this all the time, all day long. And they get it. They don't get offended. No snowflakes. And yet, God loves you. He cares for you. Jesus died for you. And his response was profound. He said, you know what, city? Even though my old man walked out on me when I was three years old, and he's been a part of the bike scene ever since, and all I've ever known in my life is drugs, alcohol, and all the men in my life keep on beating up their wives or their partners. And it's not until now, when I come across Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, only then do I know and understand and appreciate the love of Christ. Only then have I have, do I have hope for change. And this is the sort of love and hope that we're talking about here. That Joseph's brothers will change because God is able to change. That we can change because God has made it possible for us to change. And the way that he's made that possible is through his son, Jesus Christ. That we would know forgiveness, that we would know peace, that we would know acceptance, that we would know rest, that we would know what it means to be part of a family where we belong. Not based on performance, but unconditional love. That we would know destroy and that we would live from destroy and bless others around us. As we come to a close, my hope, my prayers, my encouragement is that as we've gone through this passage and considered the story of Joseph's brothers, a story of redemption when we look at Judah, that we ourselves consider the gospel. 
Because in a moment, there are stations around the room where we will remember, celebrate the life, death and resurrection of Jesus as we participate in having the bread, in drinking the wine or the grape juice, giving thanks to him for how he has saved us from sin, rescued us from guilt, saved us from the condemnation that you and I deserve. Amen.